We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and Dr. Erica Raymer for January 30th, 2024. Today, we welcome the legendary Rose Dunn to report on a new code and to share updates from CMS. With the latest coding news, as usual, is Laurie Johnson. Tiffany Ferguson reports on the social determinants of health. Tim Powell is at the Tuesday News Desk, and Dr. Reamer presents her talkback segment. Now here's the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, and a man whose name is not on the ballot, but feel free to write it in anyway, Chuck Buck. <laughs> Thanks, Clark Anthony. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 583rd live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and good morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck. I might even vote for you and well, bring all of our listeners. Good. Be sure to vote as many times as you can. Hey, you know, as you heard Clark Anthony announce, uh, the legendary Rose Dunn's going to join us later in the broadcast. She's going to be reporting on a new code. That's uh, condition code 92. So, Erica, what's your reaction to all of that? Chuck, I'm looking forward to learning something new today. Very good. And so, Erica, what's your topic for your talk back today? I am going to be talking about how we providers don't always know how what we say in our records is going to be received by our patients. Wow. Very interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Folks, we have a lot of news reports. So we'll be going with Tim Powell. Tim is at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. Thanks, Chuck. And how often have you heard when you get are getting Medicare data? Well, That does not include Medicare Advantage data in that report. Medicare Advantage, now representing over 50% of Medicare enrollment, is at the forefront of a push by the HHS to provide transparent data. HHS Secretary Xavier Becerra emphasized the importance of transparency in managed care plans in his recent statements, highlighting the lack of transparency deprives patients of vital information necessary for informed healthcare decisions, and it also limits the ability of researchers and others and doctors to evaluate patient care trends and problems. CMS Administrator Shakita Brooks-Lashure asserts the administration's commitment to improving Medicare the Medicare Advantage program, and CMS has put out a request for information, or RFI, in a step to align MA more closely with traditional Medicare, ensuring that the program meets the growing needs of enrollees. The initiative is critical as MA enrollment has surged. The government is expected to pay MA health insurance companies over $7 trillion in the next decade, and the solicited information aims to ensure that MA plans effectively meet Medicare beneficiary needs, provide timely access to care, and responsibly use taxpayer funds and promote healthy market competition. So the RFI invites public input on various MA program aspects such as access to care, prior authorization, provider directories, supplemental benefits, marketing, care quality and outcomes, value-based care, and the effects of vertical integration on payments. It also seeks suggestions on improving MA data collection and release methods with an extended comment period of 120 days. The initiative encourages feedback from a broad spectrum of stakeholders. Mina Sashish, that's easy for me to say, Sashimani, MD, PhD from CMS, uh, Deputy Administrator, stresses the importance of transparency and Medicare Advantage data in driving high-quality care and competition. The RFI is a gateway to engaging all parties interested in the MA program. So here's some things that I would love to see is, first, Part B, provider data. I would love to see 
MA data included in the Part B data files for both the summary and the detail files. This would be huge. Detailed claims data. Unlike traditional Medicare, Medicare Advantage plans are run by private insurance companies, and detailed claim data like individual services billed, are often not as readily available to the public, and this is due to proprietary concerns and privacy regulations, which could, to a certain extent, be overcome. And finally, is provider-level information. Specific information about healthcare providers, including their performance or billing practices, are not acceptable accessible for those participating in Medicare Advantage plans compared to traditional Medicare. So if you want to participate in the RFI process, the MA data RFI is accessible through the Federal Register's webpage with comments are due by May 29th of 2024. So this is a unique opportunity for stakeholders to contribute to the shaping of future of Medicare Advantage, ensuring it remains robust, transparent, and a competitive option for Medicare beneficiaries. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Wow. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert. He's also the national correspondent for ICD-10 Monitor. It's Tuesday. It's January the 30th, and you're listening to the 583rd live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Come along and take a walk with MedLearn Publishing. Walk through the coding for non-vascular catheter-based drainage, all part of interventional radiology. Get guidance for thoracentesis, paracentesis, and more. Learn about these procedures and the corresponding code choices, especially how your code choices may change based on how the procedure was performed. You'll also benefit from case studies and diagrams. Best of all, you'll walk away with confidence, ready to code catheter-based training procedures. The webcast is February 14th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register now to attend at the ICD University Bookstore. Now's the time for the Toxin Tuesday Coding Report with Lori Johnson. And good morning, Lori Johnson. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, Erica. And hello to our listeners. I was reviewing fourth quarter 2023 Coding Clinic, and one subject caught my eye. Short-term external heart assist system. There are two entries in the coding clinic on this topic. The codes are in different tables and utilize two different approaches. The Impella 5.5 with Smart Assist system is placed through an incision, which is the open approach um, of the auxiliary of the axillary artery or the ascending thoracic aorta. It is a short-term method of treating cardiogenic shock after open heart surgery or an acute myocardial infarction. An example for the code is X2HX0F9. When this code is the only procedure, the case is assigned to MSDRGs 252 to 254, which is other vascular procedures with relative weights ranging from 3.3538 to 1.7351. The other coding clinic entry discusses additions to tables 02H, which is insertion, 0P, I'm sorry, 02P, which is removal, and 02W, which is revision. These tables contain codes for a short-term external heart assist system placed, removed, or revised, in the descending thoracic aorta percutaneously. 
A code example would be 02HW3RZ for the insertion into the descending thoracic aorta. When this code is the only procedure code is assigned to MSDRG215, other heart assist system implant with relative weight of 10.2148. MSDRG215 is at the top of the surgical hierarchy of MDC5, while the MSDRG range of 252 to 254 is near the bottom. It is important to note that the location and the approach for this device, or you may want to talk with the cardiovascular surgeons at your facility to determine are they using these pumps. You may read my article in icd10monitor.com. And, you know, I was just curious yesterday. So that's it. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And thank you again, Lori Johnson. I was sure to read Lori Johnson's excellent article. It's in today's ICD-10 Monitor. Now with the Talking Tuesday report on the social determinants of health is Tiffany Ferguson and good morning, Tiffany. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, all. So last Tuesday, the Office of Minority Health released new public files on the socio-demographic and health characteristics of Medicare beneficiaries living in the community by dual eligible status. It was based off of 2021 data. The data files provided aggregated demographic information and with correlations to health status and chronic conditions, activities of daily living, mental health, and oral health data for the Medi-Medi beneficiaries. The report is the first sign of continued efforts to release valuable information regarding the social factors impacting health care for the Medicare population, which can also help to inform future policy and practice decisions. The data set from 2021 tells us some interesting details about the uniqueness of dual-enrolled Medicare, Medicaid beneficiaries and their care delivery needs to those who are not dual-eligible. So overall, we learned that 26% of dual-enrolled members speak another language than English at the home compared to only 9% of the population that is Medicare-only. We also learned that over 40% of the population was classified as having fair or poor health compared to only 18% of the Medicare-only group. When it comes to activities of daily living, those that were duly enrolled had greater difficulty walking, bathing, getting out of bed, and dressing themselves than their counterparts, suggesting a greater need for additional supportive services. This also suggests further concerns regarding the progressive nature of poverty on, one health, on one's health status. In looking at how Medicare beneficiaries were functioning, functioning in social domains, the impact of poverty was overwhelming and showing a significant de- decline in access to basic resources for those below the poverty line. 42% of those who are 0 to 138% of the federal pod poverty level, did not drive or have given up driving altogether. The subgroup was also more likely to decrease their meal size or skip meals altogether due to lack of access to food, This, um, which was reported about 40% of the population. 
This group was also likely to have more trouble staying up to date on their preventative health and annual age-related vaccines, such as pneumonia, shingles, and flu. In looking at the neighborhood domain, the population was more likely to be living alone or in an other type of setting, likely a placement facility. They were significantly more likely to also reside in disadvantaged neighborhoods, according to the Wisconsin Atlas Neighborhood um, Indicator. Not only does this population struggle with social domains, but also they were more likely to have four or more chronic conditions. So I think this report confirms some of the information we have already seen in our hospitals and EDs that our patients are, in fact, increasingly more socially and medically complex. Uh, there's a link to the actual research and some of the data in my article. And with that, back to you, Erica. Thanks, Tiffany. That was actually fascinating. That was Tiffany Ferguson, the CEO for Phoenix Medical Management. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, and uh, thank you, Tiffany. And be sure to read Tiffany's article. It's a very important article, and it's in today's ICD-10 Monitor. The world of non-coronary vascular ICD-10 coding can be fraught with challenges related to anatomy, plus the challenge of knowing the correct number of codes for these kinds of procedures. An upcoming webcast will take you on a remarkable journey, a deep dive into the world of non-coronary vascular ICD-10 coding. This webcast, ICD-10 PCS Coding for Non-Coronary Vascular Procedures, Mastering Anatomy and Coding Guidelines, will help you enhance your coding skills while elevating your coding accuracy. Take steps now to improve your ICD-10 PCS coding skills for vascular procedures. Register to attend this exclusive ICD-10 Monitor webcast so you can translate non-coronary vascular anatomy diseases and surgical treatments into precise ICD-10 PCS codes. The webcast is tomorrow, Wednesday, January 31st. Register now at the ICD University Bookstore. As you heard us mention at the top of the broadcast, the legendary Rose Dunn is with us this morning. She's going to talk about a new code from CMS plus other updates from CMS. And good morning, Rose. Welcome to the program. you got a lot of news to report, don't you? Yes. Good morning, everyone. So today I intend to share three revenue cycle topics. In December, a proposed rule was announced to establish appeal processes to comply with a court order that was issued in the case of Alexander versus Azar, which subsequently became Barrows versus Becerra. The proposed processes would apply to Medicare beneficiaries who are admitted as hospital inpatients, but are subsequently changed to outpatients receiving observation services during their hospital stay, and that's typically through the moon notice procedure. The status change results in the denial of Part A coverage for the hospital stay and may result in co-pays for the patient who is now in outpatient status. The proposed processes include three appeal options, expedited appeals for individuals or beneficiaries who disagree with the hospital's decision to change their status would entitle them to an appeal regarding the decision prior to discharge from the hospital. The appeal would be handled by a beneficiary and family-centered care quality uh, improvement organization. Standard appeals <clears throat> would be used for beneficiaries who do not file an ex expedited appeal of their status change during their stay. But the whammy 
is the retrospective appeals. This appeal category would be for beneficiaries to appeal denials of Part A coverage for those hospital services and certain skilled nursing facility services for inpatient admissions involving status changes that occurred dating back to January 1st, 2009. Yes, that's 15 years ago, and I doubt we kept the paperwork dating back to then. It is proposed that the MAX will perform the first level of appeal, followed by the QIC, the ALJ hearings, then the Medicare Appeals Council, and finally, judicial review. As suspected, in some cases, the status change and lack of a three-day qualifying inpatient stay also affected Part A coverage for a post-hospital skilled nursing facility stay. Since the order only applies to Part A, this rule would not extend to Medicare Advantage plans because their enrollees already have their own appeal process. There are qualifying criteria and exceptions to the new processes. And as I interpret the proposed rule, if the individual prevails, there would be some form of reimbursement for the costs they incurred, but no additional compensation to the facilities. The proposed order is definitely a topic you should share with your case management and it ties closely with last week's RAC Monitor Moon Notification Medicare Notices webinar that Tiffany uh, presented. The next topic is more positive and is about the CMS Health Information Handler that is now available to provide at no cost services and support to providers and other organizations interested in exchanging medical documentation such as PDFs and XMLs. Using the CMS Information Handler will allow exchange of documentation, including but not limited to prior auth requests and responses to additional document requests. The availability of this handler was announced last fall. Many billing and release of information departments are not aware of its availability, so let them know. Finally, I'll close with the leading story. A new condition code, condition code 92, became effective on January 1st. It is for the billing of intensive outpatient program services, IOPs, and the new requirement affects hospital outpatient departments, critical access departments, community mental health centers, and generally any providers billing Medicare for IOP services. If your PFS department intends to be paid properly, they need to build this condition code into their billing logic. And of course, patients must qualify for this service. There are several requirements that are outlined in the MLN notice. More information about these three topics has been provided in the comments section, so you can click on those links to get the additional information. Thanks, everyone. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Rose. That was Rose Dunn, the Chief Operating Officer for First Class Solutions. Now, here is Dr. Erica Reamer with her very popular segment here at Talking Tuesday. It's called Talk Back, and it features our own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer. It's all yours. Thanks, Chuck. So the other day, my wonderful mother-in-law shared that she was insulted when she read her doctor's note on her medical portal. Her physician kept saying she denied this and she denied that, and it felt to her as if the provider was indicating disbelief. 
This was eye-opening to me. This is a very common way to document the patient history. You ask questions and the patient either agrees or repudiates it. If they agree, you document something along the lines of the patient states or the patient endorses or the patient admits to. And if they disagree, you document the patient denies. My mother-in-law was ready to find a different healthcare provider over this. When I practiced clinically, I trained students, residents, and physician assistants. I didn't love seeing the, the patient denies this, the patient admits to that either. I just felt like it bloated the note and inflated the cost of transcription, which shows you how long ago I practiced clinical medicine. If the patient was providing the history, wasn't it obvious that it was they who, was, who were admitting or denying it? Instead of saying the patient denies chest pain on exertion, couldn't you just say no chest pain on exertion? In fact, I did used to reserve the, the patient denies for situations where I didn't completely buy into the claim. For instance, the patient denies alcohol consumption was how I documented it when I was wondering if the patient had resumed drinking. If someone else was contributing to the history, I would document that. The, the wife states that to distinguish it from information that the patient was supplying. How does the provider avoid this pitfall of saying denies or claims? I'm not sure they can or should. It also isn't realistic to routinely warn patients that this is our practice of documentation and you may be seeing it in the patient portal. You certainly can try eliminating those qualifiers from your history, but they may be pre-baked into click box templates. Practitioners should assess their documentation with an impartial eye and ensure the documentation is accurate and non-judgmental. But I do not recommend changing one's clinical practice to prevent hurting the patient's feelings. I would not suggest a physician avoid making clinically significant diagnoses. However, instead of saying morbid obesity, the provider could use the currently preferred terminology of class three, or severe obesity. By the same token, as a society, we are committed to capturing social determinants of health to address health care inequities. Um, Tiffany talks about these all the time. Social determinants of health do not define who a person is, but are situations which are adversely affecting a person. It is preferable to say experiencing incarceration or experiencing poverty Unhoused or undomiciled is a better way to convey the state previously referred to as homelessness, even if the ICD-10 terminology lags behind. This extends to mental health conditions. Labeling a person an alcoholic or an addict is disparaging. It is preferable to document experiencing addiction, but we must keep in mind that, again, the ICD-10 CM code reads, alcohol or substance abuse or dependence. It may be that the provider needs to have a frank discussion with their patient about what drinking that amount of alcohol on a daily basis means and warn the patient they, they are going to see a diagnosis of alcohol dependence in their chart. Perhaps this will be the incentive the patient needs to seek help. In the meantime, I explained to my mother-in-law that the expression patient denies 
is just our way of documenting a negative response to a question. She liked the bedside manner of the provider she saw next better anyway. I think that meant more to her than liking the documentation of the encounter in the patient portal. Back to you, Chuck. Erica, we've got a couple of minutes. Any comments or questions you'd like to ask? Um, yeah, I was wondering if Rose could expand a little bit more on some of the topics that she was talking about because they were they were quite interesting. And I know sometimes um, you guys may not appreciate it, but when we um, write up our scripts, we try to make them you know condensed and tight so that we don't run over. Um, but there's often much more we really could could say or would want to say. So, Rose, do you have anything else that you might want to um, point out that uh, is either in your article or in addition that uh, we didn't have you didn't think you were going to have time for when you <laughs> your, uh, taught your talk? Well, sure. I mean, those um, three appeal processes um, are going to be uh, pretty intensive trying to resolve an appeal while the patient's in the hospital. And if they're qualifying at this point for outpatient stay, you know it's not going to be a lengthy stay. So that's going to be a push. The, um, the, the back to 2009 situation is just, I, I can't fathom that. Um, because even retention policies in many organizations is 10 years following discharge. Whether or not we'll have to submit documentation of our rationale for classifying the individual as an outpatient once they were admitted as an inpatient, um, I'm not sure. It wasn't that clear, and I and quite honestly, I didn't read the huge federal register, but it's there in the links um, that uh, Daniel provided. Um, with regard to the um, IOP, um, uh, code 92, that MLN does provide the criteria for an individual to qualify as uh, eligible for IOP services. So there may be an, a need here to coordinate or collaborate with HIM, um, as well as the patient financial services department to make sure the patient actually meets the criteria before um, the patient accounts department bills as an IOP stay. Um, I know there's been a number of issues across the United States where there's been uh, investigations of the appropriateness of IOP billing. So I think this is an area that requires our involvement. And then last but not least, the handler um, for those of you that have electronic health records, which most of you do, and for those of you who are starting to comply with information blocking or even your state mandates, this information handler may be a nice asset um, for your release of information department to release that information and make it easier on you and, and more cost effective. So uh, look at those links. I think it's worthwhile. Thanks, Rose. And I gotta, t I gotta tell you, I watch way too many like um, uh, crime uh, TV shows. Because when you were talking about handler, the only thing I could think of was, you know, like when somebody is is a spy and they have a handler. And it took me a while to, to understand what you were talking about. Um, and Ron Hirsch wants us to uh, mention that what doctors don't need in 2024 after a payment cut from Medicare is being told how to change the way they have done things and done them well for years and years. How about concentrating on the quality of the care and not the words used to describe it? 
And I think I really agree that there are, you know, sometimes they, they tweak things and they, they make changes. You know, it would be so much easier if Medicare and Medicare Advantage were much more aligned, which I think that they've started trying to do. And I think that that's a, a, a good step forward um, because basically what I really like is for if the government is providing care for patients, they should, you know, we should do a good job providing care, we should document it, and then they should pay for it. And patients shouldn't have to, you know, fight, and we shouldn't have to appeal. It should just get paid for, and wouldn't that be utopia? And with yeah, that, Eric, I think, Eric, you know, um, yeah, on that payment note, that I, I don't know how CMS is going to reimburse these patients back to 2009. I, you know, I, I got to tell you, I, I think that when they when they do these look backs, I, you know, when I, when I was a physician advisor, you know, I would be getting denials from 18 months prior. It's like, you know, at that point, it, it's just so long ago. It's it's really hard to collect the data that you need to be able to, you know, it, it's just it's crazy. So I, I think that you're right. It's and going back to 2009 is like it's ancient history already. Anyway, we'll have to see how it goes. And everybody, if you have comments to make, now's the time. So thank you all, and uh, Chuck, back to you. And that is going to be a wrap for this. This is our 583rd live edition of Talk in Tuesday. And I want to thank our panelists today, Tiffany Ferguson, Lori Johnson, Tim Powell, the legendary Rose Dunn, who reported our lead story, and a very special thank you to my co-host, Dr. Eric Rimmer. And thank you again, everybody. Until we meet again, I'm Chuck Buck for ICD-10 Monitor and Talk in Tuesday. Have a great week, everybody. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.